0: I want you to get naked so you can tell me the truth about my money. You yes. want to take your clothes off? Would you like me to take off my clothes? It's okay with Why, me. Why, it's a pleasure. As a matter of fact, everybody. Harry, everybody wait take a off minute, your clothes. Marty, I don't want to take off my clothes. I have too many scars. I understand. Go on inside, Peppy. Go on inside and take care of the telephone. In the meantime, everybody takes off their clothes. Harry, take off your clothes. Take them off. George Raff never took his clothes off. Help him take off his clothes, will you? No, no, wait, wait, one second, one second. I don't need any help. Joanne, just a second. I want you to wait right here. I'd like you to see what goes on after all, this is what I owe you. I owe this much to And I understand you, you're nervous. Well, I'm not nervous. Yes, you are. You're nervous like I was when I was a kid. I was in high school. I used to dread gym class. Absolutely dread it. Well, well, no, no. Because I didn't have any pubic hair until I was 15 years old. Oh, yeah, you must have looked like one of the three little pigs. Ain't hey, funny, Marlowe. No, 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 no. Take I'm it not easy. Making no joke. See, but... look, it's very simple. The man is nervous. Just a minute. Look at this. What's that? A picture of James Madison? It's a $5,000 bill. I know. See that? You take off your clothes, everything comes out honest.
1: Down south, we sweat and strain. We were the prisoners of cotton. Cotton come to Harlem, we blew cotton's wood, we blew cotton's wood, down south, cotton was king, a black man's life
0: meant not a dam.
2: Hello and welcome to Stuff We've Seen, this is your host James Kent, and uh, this week it's a special series, it's going to be the part one, uh, Criterion uh, Channel and uh, TCM, Charter Classic Movies, are both focusing this month on Neo-Noir, um, so for those who are like, what, is, what does Neo-Noir mean, I don't understand it, well hopefully this series is going to give you a good taste of what that is. Um, Going to be tons of movies we're going to talk about, and it's going to be largely focused on Criterion's 26 neo noir that they're offering uh, for the month of July, and, and which is almost over because that would be no good because you wouldn't be able to see them. But they are all it'll it'll be through uh, August and probably September and October too. Uh, so you should have plenty of time to watch uh, these films. Uh, I've watched a ton of them, and so has uh, this week's uh, guest. Co-host, uh Bill Muir. Bill from Queens. Hi, Bill. Hello.
1: Hello, Jimmy. How Look are you? You're
2: laughing already.
1: Yeah, well, what can I tell you? Every time I hear your voice, you make me laugh.
2: Right. <laughs> I know. It's, it's very comical. It's, it's very clownish.
1: <laughs> I know. Okay. Yeah. I get to be uh Ed to your Johnny? There you go.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that that that's weird, Bill. That is some, <laughs> that is some weird stuff. Yeah, oh, ah, yeah. we we we're gonna what 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 are we gonna do? ahead? we're gonna do neo noir. <laughs> yeah, I haven't, I haven't. Yeah, yeah. actually, on, that's on, more of a
1: Letterman would like sorry. repeat yeah. that again and again, wouldn't he? Yeah,
2: ball <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know. I haven't, I wasn't planning on doing it yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Neo noir, neo noir. Yeah, no, no, no. That's um, ah! that's new. that's what yeah, we used to yeah, do. Yeah, ah! It I means new, 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 new
2: dark. We've just new, lost new all. We've yeah. lost all the kids in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, what was he talking about? I practically don't even know. Um, Anyways, we're not going to hear talk about that. We're going to be talking about neo-noir. Um, right. I'm, I'm, so what we're going to do, this is how we're going to do it. We, we Look, we're, we know it's going to take multi-parts because we have tons of movies because we've augmented uh, Criterion channels selection with some selections of our own. Uh, we may just reference other ones because neo-noir isn't just 26 movies. It's 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 hundreds. Uh, there are tons. And so we're never going to get to all of them. And so if you're listening and go, they didn't cover this movie. That's a neo-noir. It's not that we didn't know it was a neo-noir. We just... Uh, you know, it's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff, lot and of stuff. that's the first thing you do when you get a list from Criterion. You're all excited to see what titles they are, and then you're like, "But they didn't include this. They didn't include that. Why did they include this one and not that one?" And it's because you know they they get what movies they can license, right? Well,
1: what exactly? Exactly. I think I thought that was um, part of uh, your conversation with. Um, uh the creative director at the Somerville I thought that was actually what was very interesting you know just him talking about what's available and uh you know how uh, they license what they can
2: yeah I mean Criterion doesn't own all these movies, um, and and maybe only a few of them are in their actual collection, which would give them more access. So they they are able to get certain films for a few you know months at a time. And uh, right. so there's a lot. And the idea here is, if you like the genre, maybe after this series is done, you know you're going to search out some of these titles you haven't uh, before. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed. Uh, when it comes to neo-noir i think it's a little bit misunderstood uh right because i mean yeah because
1: talk about the genre itself i mean in terms of why the neo-noir you know and why at this time why now billy
2: why now (laughs) neo-noir um well one of the things i i notice (laughs) on social media uh, if you look at tcm again they're doing on friday nights they're focusing on neo-noir and which is cool is that the movies that they pick if you watch them On TCM, you got, uh, like, Ben Mankiewicz. He'll be with some other co-host, and they'll talk a little bit about the movie and give you a little bit of perspective. And I... Most of the films they're showing are also the ones that are on Criterion, so no surprise there. I think they have somewhat of an affiliation, and uh, they've got the same films. But sometimes TCM is showing something that uh, Criterion's not, and so I, you know, kind of DVR'd a couple of uh, selections. And... I would read on their social media, there's always some clown going, I don't understand. That movie is not really, like, the kind of movie TCM shows. I really wish TCM would stick to what they're, what they're you know, best at. What they best myself. at, right. I'm Like, do you need to see The Thin Man for the thousandth time or something, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Gilda not on this week for you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> But and I think that's ridiculous because somebody was complaining about uh, uh, Cutter's Way was on last night. and I read this comment and that's when the, the comment was was like, why? This is not the kind of film that TCM shows. And I'm like, oh, oh, you mean 40 years ago is not classic enough for you? Right? <laughs> and yeah, right. it's maybe I mean, you know, in the funny 40 years, that's a long time.
1: They're basically talking about uh, like um, they, they want uh, movies from the Golden Age. You know, and that's and that's what they think, and uh, but that's that's what what should be.
2: But that's what's already. That's a good um, segue into noir versus neo-noir these people are like right. you know they want the classic gumshoe uh you know Marlowe uh and uh, sam spade films uh, right. that are like all very contrasty black and white than the right. square one three seven frame and uh you know that type of film and that's what noirs were and they really came out largely after uh world war Two. Right, and, and I
1: love I love how the the term originated. You know, obviously in France that um, that they felt what was so amazing as compared to the kind of bright. Hollywood musicals of the 1930s that they had seen. They hadn't seen American films during the war, you know, under occupation. And then all of a sudden you have all of these movies that are about civic corruption and, you know, uh, about uh, crooked police officers and have, you know, not very upbeat endings. And, you know, the idea that there's something darker, you know, it's not the the cowboy you know uh shooting the uh the bad guy in the black hat at the end it's a much you know more kind of muddled world and their fascination with gee what's going on there that i i think is you know so great about the genre yeah and, and
2: then there's the anti-hero so there's usually this uh person that you're actually asked to identify uh with and follow their story and they're very flawed characters and sometimes they don't meet the best ending, as you say, because Fred McMurray. Oh and, uh, Fred McMurray. But there's a whole <laughs> bunch of I mean I've watched it through Criterion. Uh one of the first collections they had was the uh Columbia Noir series. And I got to see like, you know, I was so fascinated with them. I, I watched tons of them that I had never seen these movies before.
1: I remember you spoke about this. Yes, yeah, in the past. Yeah, and
2: so you know that gives you all of the uh, the staples of a noir film. So so neo noir, um, which really started in the sixties, and right. there's really two factors. Uh, a the genre was still popular. I right? mean, you know, uh, filmmakers yes. still like to explore these dark uh, stories. Some of it are detective type scenarios whether the detective is an official detective or a kind of lay person who becomes a detective right um trying to unravel a mystery but two different things the first is color 60s right not that there wasn't technicolor movies etc but it was becoming by and large the format that was replacing black and white so now you have Mm. color into the mix and if you're going to tell a detective or kind of a CD story doing it in color th- there was new experimentation happening because it's like how do you do that and what does it look like right. and how does it feel and just by the fact that it was color and you weren't doing all of these crazy shadows and all of this stuff to kind of create a mood the genre is being reconfigured right and then right. secondly the production code which You know, when you were doing noirs of the 40s and 50s, there were rules. You couldn't have a bad CD character as your main character unless all the crimes they were doing, they came to a head, and at the end, they met an end. They paid for it. They had to pay for it. Yes. Right. That was like a thing. It was a part of the code, and that broke down in the 60s. So now the 60s neo-noirs were like the first of those genres to, like, explore different avenues, let's say.
1: Right. And I, I would also kind of add, you. I'm sure you remember, um, well, uh, you know, a lot of people, there's been a lot written about the fact that um, uh, Vietnam and Watergate kind of disillusionment, that sort of plays a part in uh, in neo-noir, um, you know, that that uh, kind of renews that sense of uh, kind of questioning, uh, I, I guess you can say public integrity, you know, uh, and, and the idea of kind of uh, civic corruption comes up, Um, as related to that, but also the other thing, do you remember when you were a kid, how, uh, Humphrey Bogart, there was this nostalgia in like the, the seventies for Humphrey Bogart that he like, um, and, and, uh, you had Woody Allen's, you know, play it again, Sam. And, you know, even, you know, uh, Peter Falk and murder by death. There really was, and, and Columbo, there really was this kind of interest in reviving that type of character from noir. You know, at the time. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, you know, it's funny. And we're going to, we're, we're taking this long, slow route to get into this, but I think we're trying to set the stage because what we're going to do is the Criterion channels 26 movies. They uh, start in the 70s. And if you look at the order, if you go on the Criterion channel and you click on noir, it starts um, at the beginning of the 70s and then it works its way up to the last film. Uh, or the latest entry which is in 2005 Um, and that's as far as they go and so when we start talking, we're going to start talking about the these films in the seventies. I'm going to go in order, and and then once we get into each film, it may you know we may jump in, we may talk about films that are later in the list just as they relate to these particular movies. But the things that you're saying, Bill, about the corruption, I think I think that become end of the Watergate. Those become very very important themes in these seventies movies. Right.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So, uh, shall we start at the beginning?
2: The beginning is a very good place to start. (laughs) Um, Yeah, hold on a second. Oh, is that you that's clicking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, What is that noise? That's a rabbit. Oh, gee. Oh, they're drinking. It's drinking water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was trying to determine if there was somebody upstairs creaking a chair, but it's the the (laughs) rabbit drinking water. The the rabbit drinking water. Yes. You're going to have to go buy it uh, curry curry rabbit food. (laughs) I'm gonna I get curry rabbit. <laughs> and then if you like, don't get the right rabbit food; it, it's, it's gonna leave it's, you. It's
1: gonna, it's gonna leave. Hopefully. All right, I want to jump leave.
2: around because we're gonna get to that. We're definitely gonna get to that this episode. So uh, you know, stay with <laughs> us. Um, okay, so first film that Criterion Channel is offering—it's uh, actually kind of like it's like a twofer, right? They and it's it's weird. I think I think it's a weird way to start uh, *Neo Noir*. Yes.
1: I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say it 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 seems a little off brand yeah and and I've tried to kind of in my mind rationalize it it makes sense but go ahead it's not a, a perfect fit
2: well it, so I think that's what's interesting is Criterion with their 26 films they don't just come out of nowhere and as I watched all right it, here's full disclosure Bill uh, there are 26 movies I had not seen or fully seen about seven of those movies on the list by the time uh, so that's that started july 1st and it is now the 24th of july when we're taping this i have now seen all 26 movies and with the new watches and the rewatches I've re-watched or seen for the first time 15 of those. (laughs) I've gone through quite a lot, and that's not counting the extras that I've watched on my own that were not on Criterion. So I've seen probably about 20 movies in the past few weeks. It's a lot. I'm I'm not saying I'm burnt out, but uh, it's definitely a lot. And that's what Criterion does really well is it throws titles that are unexpected in their list, And not ones that would immediately come to mind as a neo-noir. And when you watch them, you don't necessarily go, that's a neo-noir. And the first is this Cotton Comes to Harlem movie. Um, It's by Ozzie Davis. Which that's fascinating, right? That he made a film. Yes. Yes. And this is an actor, um, if you don't know who who he is, um, but he made this movie. I don't know if he, did he ever make any other features? Uh, I believe he did.
1: I think I think he directed one or two other films, but um, this uh, this is the one that uh, is best known for.
2: So I'd never seen this film, and so I was kind of curious to watch it. It was one of the first uh, films that I did a watch rewatch. Uh, it was not my favorite film um, for for any different variety of reasons, um, but it's you know it's it's lumped into the black exploitation genre.
1: It's usually often cited as like the you know kind of one of the. the cornerstones of of blaxploitation cinema um and and a lot of people kind of quibble about it but it's 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 a very important film obviously in in film history for a number of reasons but i i think it's a little silly as a film.
2: It, well, that's the thing. neo you noir? Know, it's more of a comedy in a weird way. It's a lot right. of things. I don't know if new, it, it has a couple of uh, noir tropes to it, which is where right. I guess it gets uh, gets a pass. Um, first of all, another thing. Let's take a step back here on the black exploitation. Even as a kid, I always hated that term because I always felt that the term itself was racist.
1: Uh, unpack that a little bit. Guys, I'm, uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, you yeah.
2: know what I mean. Like, like I would hear black exploitation already. That sound that sounded to me like an exploitation of black people by just saying the term, and I felt right. that what it did is it put a patina on a lot of these movies that were they were made for a black um, audience. audience um though i'm sure that there were plenty of white people that watched these movies and enjoyed them too maybe for different reasons Um, they definitely had their own um sort of agenda i mean it was definitely like one of the first times where you'd hear black people getting a chance to stick it to the man a little bit and you'd get to hear them talk back but you'd also have these characters that sometimes i felt like they still leaned heavily
1: superfly superfly standing up to the mafia you know, and um Cleopatra Jones coming after um
2: you know. Well yeah, the mafia was all the mafia and the cops were always the bad guys in the movies. Right. Um and I guess in Cotton Comes to Harlem, there's like it's a cavalcade of bad people. Everybody right. is like kind of hustling everyone else in the movie. And then of course, this is where I guess it has a noir staple is there's a MacGuffin. In right the film um, uh, not that, all of that, them the, money, them, the money the money
1: that's think. been collected is missing and and you're, you're following these two cops coffin and gravedigger who are looking for uh <laughs> yeah and
2: yeah. the way they say gravedigger in the movie it's terrible because it, it, it it's mumbled and said real fast in a way that it's pretty clear that they're trying to say Gravedigger in a way that people would think of it as something else, if you know what I'm saying. right, um, right, 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 right. Yeah, so it's kind of shocking. Uh, it's also noted that it gave uh, audiences who didn't know the comedian, maybe it's white audiences for the first time, took a sit-up and notice of Red Fox, and it yes. is said yeah, he's, that he's this great. led to him getting Sanford and Son. Right. Because people right. just thought yes. his character was hilarious. Uh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, and he's you know he's he's the kind of comedy guy who he tends to seem to have his hands on the MacGuffin, which is this cotton right that everybody is chasing. Uh, that's why cotton comes to Harlem too. There's this cotton that everybody's chasing that there's money hidden in the co- in the cotton.
1: Right. And and that's the whole thing is that so there there's a, a a guy who's kind of a Marcus Garvey, kind of a modern Marcus Garvey type figure who's raising money to buy a ship to go back to Africa. Which and, already
2: um, is a race, a whole racist thing. Right. Not, right, that, it, not right, that there right, weren't right, 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 folks, right, right, right. but that he was really hustling to get money for himself.
1: Right. And, um, you know, these two cops are, are watching this whole uh you know, fundraising effort, and then there's a stick up. But um, the thing, the move, I gotta tell you, very quickly, I I kind of became uh, very skeptical of the film. And I'll tell you, like, there's one I'm timing
2: you. You said quickly. There's one shot.
1: There's one shot. There's one shot. Okay. Is that when um, there's kind of this um, uh, black nationalist paramilitary organization that's clearly supposed to be like the Black Panthers. They show up and the cops pick up their leader and throw him up in the air. And there's the shot of him like being you know from the ground looking mm-hmm. up at the sky of him going up which to me i was just like okay i see this is super fuzz right now it's like <laughs> that kind of shot it's super <laughs> you fuzz. know the terrence hill uh, italian, i know the uh, <laughs> movie yes
2: i do it's a uh carbucci so, special
1: yeah yeah so that's
2: uh, i loved as a kid but i couldn't quite understand why the voices didn't always match up i didn't understand right. i didn't know it was like an italian movie <laughs> that i didn't understand what but- but once you have uh,
1: a shot like that, I even include, um, you know, Animal House, where like, you know, somebody's going flying up in the air, like, you know, oh, something out yes. of, uh, you know, I'm just like, all right, okay. And you can take
2: your thumb out of my ass anytime now, Carmichael. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, mortal line. Um, but uh, it, it, um, you know so basically i um there there's also that very famous and iconic shot where after they're chasing the um the bale of cotton where they they smash into a truck full of watermelons yeah
2: there's no stone left under and here's the funny thing right and i don't know it's not funny but in the in the the haha way but what is interesting is that this I, I don't know all the, I mean, I'm not doing like i uh, I'm not writing a novel on <laughs> comes to Harlem and how this all I, kind of put together, but you wonder like, w- like if from the storytelling, et cetera, where's the white person involvement in all of these shenanigans and where's Avi, Ozzie Davis in this, or is his whole approach was they're going to make this damn movie anyway. And I got to at least put some legitimacy to it.
1: I, I think, I think there's possibly that. I really, that's the thing. I, I do know that they, it was, the movie was a hit, and they wanted to do a sequel and he didn't want to have anything to do i think that he like didn't like what they were planning to do with the sequel and so
2: he was it fried chicken comes to harlem next (laughs) i don't know i don't
1: know yeah but uh you got vigo mortensen
2: (laughs) like driving through the town throwing chicken out the window ha 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 let's give it an oscar (laughs) freaking green book god damn it um (laughs) but uh but you know what? Here's what's kind of cool, though, right? Not cool. There's a couple of there's a couple of moody scenes. One is at the end. There's like this thing that happens towards the end. And again, I kind of lost the thread of the story. I mean, I'm like I'm counting coins and putting them into like, uh, you know, coin coin wrappers while I'm watching right. this movie. And there's this part where they go into the strip club thing, right towards the yeah. end. And that uh, it's just a really cool, groovy scene, man, where uh, the dancers are dancing to that song, Cotton Comes to Harlem. Right. And there's like an energy and a vibe there that really, I don't know, it's like a mood thing. And it's very cool. And also the fact that these movies, and I think this is a – I'm mentioning this now because that's another thing that I will notice that by and large out of all of these neo-noirs, one cool thing is yeah, they're not high budget. And so they tend to lean on real locations. Um, So there's an authenticity that comes with the neo-noir movies that gives it a grit and a look. But I personally – and I think this is why it's maybe one of my – favorite genres as I'm discovering is that I always like seeing some kind of realism in cinema. And so as hokey as cotton comes to Harlem is, it's all shot on the streets of Harlem.
1: Yes. And, and that's, you're bringing me around to one of the things in the very beginning is, um, you know, that the whole car chase Um, in terms of geographically, and this is, I'm going to sound like my dad, and it's like, like, makes no sense because they're on the east side, they're on the west side, they're moving up, down, you know, there's no continuity really in terms of that. And, you know, I'm figuring that, um, you know, that that wasn't so much the concern, but the locations, I got to tell you, and I I remember I said this before about the Hot Rock, the Robert uh, Redford movie, is that I could just, you know, sit and watch that footage on a a loop because it just reminds me of uh, New York in the 70s when I was a kid.
2: Now I'm going to do a mention, right, before we get into the next film, which really does tie into Cotton Comes to Harlem in many ways, Um, but is way more of a neo-noir than Cotton Comes to Harlem is. Um, But before we get to that, just because I'm going in chronological order, uh, I'm going to do a shout out that uh, the Brits were getting into neo-noir in a different way. And one of my favorite uh, neo-noir films of all time is get Carter and yes. that was 1971. So I wanted to mention it, but you know, we're sticking as close as we can to Criterion. But anytime I get a film that's kind of sandwiched in these years, so we see what else was going on, uh, that is still a great film if you've never seen it. I think it's one of Michael Caine's uh, best performances, and he's yes. just so freaking cool, cold, calm, and collected.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's a great film. Um, it's still. You know, uh, I, I think what's so interesting about it is how hard bitten it is and how kind of cynical and that's it. It has that kind of bleakness that we associate with noir. And it's um, I think it's one of the best gangster films. And it's, it's kind of interesting, you know, again, how. Um, we talk about noir, but there's this kind of overlap between the detective, between the gangster, you know, this whole idea of like the seedy underbelly of society and how he, you know, um, Michael kane you know, goes back to his hometown and, you know, uh, you know, kind of sees all of the, the kind of, um, uh, corruption and, and filth that's kind of taking place and, and, um, uh, and how he's knee-deep in it. It's just very, very g- great film.
2: Well, he's working for the high-class London uh, gangsters. And then he goes right. up north <laughs> into the CDs. But, uh, and it also has a very noir conclusion to the movie. Um, yes. You know, yes. a neo-noir and, and, cl- conclusion, I would say. Right. and
1: I. Uh, but Kane's performance is just incredible. And the thing that's so great about this film is if you watch it with um, the remake...
2: You know, have you,
1: ever, have you ever seen the remake of Sylvester I, Stallone? I have
2: only watched a few parts. I'll be honest.
1: Yeah, it um, they really soften uh, a lot of the stuff that the character does in the remake, of course. Which is, you know, I mean that that's one of the things is that um, in the nineteen seventies, you know, they really weren't afraid to make a character unsympathetic
2: oh yeah he's very unsympathetic <laughs> yet yet his mission right now, that's the whole idea about the he's anti-hero righteous. right he has a righteous mission to get down to the truth meanwhile there's some some awful things that go on and uh that my my favorite part of get carter I, i'm trying not to spoil things for anybody that's like hmm I get carter i should check it out uh is that if you're well, films like this are great to rewatch after you've gone through the whole journey because then you pick up on a lot of things that I mean, it's a pretty dense plot with a lot of characters, very thick accents, and I'll be honest, I loved it the first time I watched it. However, when you watch it more and more, it just gets more layered because you really start to see the relationships and you pick up things you just didn't pick up the first time around. Um, but something I picked up on right at the beginning it just happened because i'm very good at facial recognition there's something that happens during the opening credits yes that yes. if you pay attention to it right and mm-hmm. then you see the conclusion of the movie right rewatch it and go again and then you're like oh my god right so you you just understand the movie at a whole different level because this is yes. just, he's on his train ride going up to his brother's uh of up of funeral but there's just yeah. there's somebody yeah. on that train um, that it's not—it's done in such a subtle way that it's really, I think, almost like an Easter egg for people to pick that up.
1: You know, it's very funny because I like that movie so much. There's a movie that we're going to revisit maybe at the, that's on the end of your list, Stormy Monday.
2: Oh, it's not on my list, but... Mike. Oh, Mike Figgis did Stormy Monday.
1: Did Stormy Monday, yeah, yeah, with Melanie Griffith and uh, Sean Bean and Sting.
2: Yeah, no, but yeah. that's okay. See, this is this one of the rules I've set up is that we can always reference any movie from any time that helps make a case or related to. So we we're allowed to well, bring in that's, other Well,
1: that's, that's the thing about uh, Stormy Monday is that it, very clearly he's making a link with Get Carter, you know, um, there's uh, the bridge that, you know, that they use a lot in the movie is used in Stormy Monday as well. And it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, Get Carter is the best. I really, uh, I, I can't, uh, if, if you haven't seen it, people should see it. Yeah, I mean,
2: I've seen it as a double bill in the theater with uh, Point Blank. So there's a great Double feature, and of course, we're not talking about the '60s. Uh, though, if you want to look at films that uh, kind of got us into the neo-noir genre, Point Blank is probably the you know one of the seminal works. Uh, right. And uh, but that's a great pairing with Get Carter. But then also, that's if you funny. want to get to see Michael Caine play one of the more sinister head gangsters. Then you want to pair it with later on Criterion in the 80s is offering Mona Lisa, which we'll get to yes. probably in a later part. Um, yes. And that he gets to play kind of one of the head. And he's, he's just viciously evil in that movie.
1: Yes. I I, I want to, I mean, just in quick reference to that. I mean, we'll talk about it later, but Pauline Kael said about that performance, I'll never forget. She said, I've never seen a well-known actor, um, you know, a celebrity. Uh, in a performance have the ability to become so menacing and unlikable oh yeah yeah (laughs) it's
2: it's great i mean that yeah so i mean that's another thing too i find that by and large when we watch these neo-noirs the villains I don't know if they're more realistic, but they're more like, you know, a lot of times Hollywood with their action movies today, I mean, a villain is, oh, these are villains and they've got a lot of henchmen, but you're not really, you don't get to really understand anything behind them. In these no, it's, movies, it's kind of
1: like it's kind of like you know Batman TV show with the henchmen. Exactly, of, you
2: know, they're right? They don't have as so many football, f- flashy yeah. costumes, but here they're more lived-in, real people that are also bad, and they kind of know that they're bad, that they're in the business of being bad, and I think that's where we get into um, a film that is a rewatch for me. But I enjoyed it a lot more the second time, only because I was focused on it with a new lens. That's what Criterion does with these, is that you take a movie like Across 110th Street, which was for 1972, and... It's right into this black exploitation, and it was always framed that way for me, like, oh, I got to see this film that Tarantino used the song for in- uh, In Jackie Brown. In Jackie Brown. And the opening, yeah. So the first thing you'll notice when you see this 110th Street uh, film is that it's way different than you might expect. It is like a crime Story. It's very mm-hmm. neo noir in a lot of ways, And yes. that what and a neo noir one of the staples is is you've got to live with the bad guys who may have committed a crime that, otherwise, you just see the crime and you don't really focus on those people. But here, you get people that kind of create an unspeakable act of crime at the very beginning of the movie, and right. then you actually that
1: they, they hold up they hold up you know basically the um, collection. For the mob, the mafia-run numbers racket, and they come in and they hold it up, dressed as cops, and they have to kill mobsters and they have to kill cops getting out of it. Yes, and uh, so then they have mobsters and cops coming after them.
2: Yeah, and of course it's it's creating um well there's like tension there's like a peace um, a partnership and a tension with the New York police the downtown. Italian white mafia and the Mm. Harlem black mafia who all take a piece of this pie, but it's up in Harlem and these guys rip them off, but they kill a whole bunch of people. It's a pretty violent, uh, you know, shootout at the beginning of the film. But then unlike most films where maybe you would focus on the cops and the, the mobsters going after these guys, but you wouldn't actually, the guys become kind of nameless and it would be whether or not, like the mystery is whether they're going to find them. This film, like a lot of great noir movies or neo-noir, they flip the script because you actually spend some time on the journey of these guys trying to see if they can outlive the next couple of days.
1: Right, and and it's, it's very well done in terms of... Um you know, as a, kind of a, a running man type movie. You know, the idea of them being on the run and and sort of following. You know, then again, also uh, the people who are after them, the mafia guys and everything. And I, I, when we we spoke about this a little bit before, and what you said you really liked was that how the mobsters felt very real to you.
2: Well, they, they I mean, just the way, like, like the, you know, sometimes with the fact that these movies didn't have a big budget, right? Sometimes people weren't dressed in like a costume designer's outfit for these people. These are kind of like you get a slice of what did things look like in 1972? And Mm -hmm. if you've ever seen pictures of uh, New York Mafia in the early 70s and the way that they were dressed with the way that their jackets, their suit jackets and their ties and their hair and their sideburns, that's Mm -hmm. what these guys look like. And I thought that was very authentic. I'm not sure if this is exactly as authentic of the lower part of Harlem looked like or not. Though, like, like, you know, the police uniforms were the way the police uniforms looked. And one of the first things that, again, will surprise you, and it surprised me when I watched it the first time, and then it would surprise me again, is the Bobby Womack song, Across 110th Street. The version that you hear in the movie is not the version you'd hear in, in Jackie Brown. Right. That's like maybe like a, a radio release version in Jackie Brown, and this is a totally different version.
1: Yeah, it's more low-key.
2: Yeah, low-key. it doesn't have that slow burn, moody sound that the Jackie Brown version has. It's right. a little bit sped up, a little bit more street, a little bit more energy. And again, another thing that's really cool about this film... Is the fact that it's all shot on locations. I don't think there's any sets in the film. And no. there was, and I don't remember the name of the camera, but I read about this was, because I had, I had to understand, like, what was, you know, why did this have such a raw look? And you had mentioned in the text that you said you were always fascinated by the look. And this is why.
1: I, I was sort of obsessed with the look of the movie. For because I mean it just feels so gritty and so real, even when the movie kind of you know you have Anthony Quinn in it overacting and
2: yeah I don't I don't I don't truthfully I'm not sure. Correct me if I'm wrong. You'd have to do your film history. I'm not sure that there's not a movie that Anthony Quinn didn't overact in. (laughs) He's a ham like that guy. You know, handed him the jambon. Award because uh, like you ever see him in his later movies? Holy crap! Oh, yeah, oh, uh, yeah, 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 but yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, he's very overacting. Oh my god,
1: but even even when he's oh, I'm still the movie has equality to it that feels super real, yes, the look of it because of the locations, because of um, the grain, because of the depth of field. So, what were you going to say about the camera? Because now you I'm totally okay. So, fascinated. here's the
2: deal one of the things that prevented a lot of on location shooting before and shooting in real locations and why they had to do things on soundstage is because the cameras are so big and they were so loud and noisy. You needed a lot of control so that you wouldn't hear, I mean, you know, look, the fact is right. you'd hear the, 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 the clicking of the camera <laughs> on the, you know, the film. And it was very hard uh, right. in those days. They had developed a new 35 I think it was an Aries camera that was very light, very small and very quiet. And mm-hmm. that was one of the very first movies to use it. And it allowed them to shoot with low light and in these like tiny uh, apartment. Dwellings and every place, and so they suddenly had this freedom to shoot all sorts of angles and and ways and in stairwells and all this stuff they just couldn't wow. shoot before. And so yeah. by doing it, it's kind of that off the hip. It has this almost verite look. It's it's it yes. feels when you shoot in real locations and the people look around the lighting. It 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 somehow tricks the brain into thinking this is somehow like a documentary and it's yes. real versus like a story that Hollywood created.
1: Right. And, you know, that's that's the thing is that, um, you know, how everything plays out maybe isn't as successful. I'm talking about in terms of the script. Yeah. You know, in terms of the way and, um, you know, and and we spoke about the ending. I don't want to give anything away. Um, I think, you know, the the conclusion um, may be a little forced, cheesy, however you want to put it. But I think, though, at the same time, the look of the film and um some of the performances is just uh, absolutely um terrific you know more of this more of the supporting performances well you
2: know you and i are definitely uh, yafet Kodo guys yes and so that adds to it because he's just he's kind of cool
1: <laughs>
2: right <laughs> he's incredible. i think he had to go right from that set i'm not i'm not kidding i think it was like one of these things where he had to go right from that set to the set like fly overseas for the James Bond, movie. James Bond he got that, he got that role as he was finishing up this film.
1: Right. Right. And it's, it's a very, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, a very interesting performance because he, you know, Yafit Koto does have this sort of great ability to kind of explode into kind of anger. And here it's kind of like righteous anger at times, but where yafokoto Koto is really great is when he's just kind of, being cool and not perf- like almost kind of underplaying and it's a very interesting contrast between him and Anthony Quinn who's like over the top through <laughs> most yeah. of the Yeah. And
2: he's this he's the chiseled cop that's on the verge of retirement. Right. You know, Anthony because he's supposed to be this guy in retirement and you know, it's almost like the one last case, but he's having that case taken away from him because instead of the cops running the streets in Harlem, um the the cops higher ups were trying to let Harlem be policed by people of color. Right. And,
1: you know, it's um basically the whole idea that um Yafin Koto is going to try to stop, you know, riots from happening and if Anthony Quinn and uh, you know, the white officers, you know, is is that's kind of the premise in the story. If they're kind of given, you know, uh, free reign that it's gonna provoke um, you know, civil unrest. Yeah, and
2: yeah. And meanwhile, the black mafia wants these guys because they don't want the unrest. They don't want the the white mafia from uh, Italy getting their own guys. And so, right. and, and they want to have they want to have a war with the Italian guys. So they're after them. And then, of course, then you have the Italian mafia, which here's fascinating. I, it, I, it's a fascinating performance because it's just so like ugly and racist and evil is um, the the head mafia guy. He was like the son of like one of the Dons and he's up there trying to show his mouth. And it was played by this guy, Anthony Frankie Osa.
1: Yeah. And I got to say he's, that is a great Performance it is he gives and and I actually I, I think I had said to you I'm surprised that like what else was he in
2: well I don't know he's been in tons of stuff he was actually nominated for an Oscar in 1957 for uh, a hat full of rain okay didn't see it but here's Me something neither. fascinating he, he's obviously he's really the stuff that comes out of his mouth is just horrible and racist but in real life he was a fervent civil rights activist. And he and Brando and Newman went down to Alabama in 1963 for a desegregation drive. Yeah, so it's interesting. But uh, again, it's not a film that I would normally think of as a neo-noir, but in fact, it really is.
1: Yeah, and I think it's very good of them to put that in. I'm, i you know, I'm, I'm glad that I was able to uh, watch it again.
2: Yeah, but there's some films, and I'm just. This is where I'm mentioning is that you know, if you were, if they were looking to say, hey, let's look uh, from an uh, African American perspective of like neo noir and fine stuff. Now again, I don't know what they could or could not get, but I think an interesting film that might have been uh, something that they could have added was 1997's Devil in a Blue Dress or 1996, yes. I'm not sure which the, the year it is, but that's a not only a film that it's it's in that you know post World War 2 noir film setting but it's actually um a whole black community and it really involves in like kind of the struggles that uh African Americans were having in Los Angeles at the time post World War 2 and right. you have a very um anti-hero setup of um denzel washington's character yes it's not my, my favorite movies but i think it's just it's a very interesting movie that kind of would have been a great addition
1: yes no that that definitely would have been uh, uh one
2: to add and it was also directed by an african-american director uh carl franklin right. right but uh so that would have been i think an interesting contrast into picking two films that were really from this uh, black exploitation genre certainly better than like i said Or Shaft, to be honest,
1: Shaft. Because if you think about it, if you're going to go with that, because it is the private eye, you know, really is kind of the, at the start of noir. I mean, most people, when they talk about noir, you know, the first film that they talk about as being, you know, kind of uh, in kind of the canon of noir is uh, Maltese Falcon.
2: This is one of the things that, When you're deciding to do a noir story, this is what gets tricky from the 70s on up is this notion of the detective, right? I mean, with technology and stuff, I don't think detectives, you know, one thing you notice in these detective movies, you never actually see any of them get paid money. Sometimes money is talked about, but I'm like, you always wonder how these people live because how, how, how much money can you really make, it seems like for these cases. Um, And the question is, is that I think that as a kid, I always thought, oh, there must be these detective agencies detecting and doing stuff. But I don't think that today, I don't say that, you know, the private investigators, they do exist in in companies, but I think it's more of like uh, Max and Neve doing catfish detection (laughs) than it is (laughs) with real detectives. But um, that could be interesting, right? As you get like two people that like, you know, specialize in catfishing stories and it turns into a whole thing. So we're going to write that one, Billy. But uh, you know okay. when we but but when we talk about okay, 1970s, and we want to look at the traditional detective and gumshoe, and how do we reinvent a character that everybody knows, um, and especially like older generations, right? In 1973, we're very familiar with um, your classic Philip Marlowe, and stuck in the stuck in the 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 thought that oh, a Philip Marlowe can only be a Humphrey Bogart, right? Right. But Along comes Robert Altman and his screenwriter, Lee Brackett, and you have this movie, The Long Goodbye.
1: Yes. Uh, A masterpiece. It is a
2: masterpiece. However, it's like anything. You got to know what you're getting into. And the problem is that with a lot of these noir movies, we may love them today and look at them differently. But one staple is a lot of them were box office bombs at the time. Mm-hmm. Not everyone, but a lot of them were not huge, huge monster smashes. And a lot of them at first pass, critics were iffy to negative to it. And The Long Goodbye was one of those films that originally was a disaster. for Critics hated it. And then some, of course, liked it, but it didn't matter. The audiences stayed away. And it's partly because it has different things on its mind than being like some action detective movie.
1: Right. Uh, I mean the the because the atmosphere is so much uh, a star of the film, really kind of capturing a, a vibe, if you will. Yes. You know, Southern California in the early '70s, um, and I, I just got to say, you know what is so interesting when you talk about kind of the alchemy of like what makes a movie work or not and why should you know you think about you look at the ingredients of this so robert altman obviously a great director lee brackett who i could go on and on and on about in terms of you know just what a a talented writer you know um brought to write the script the last thing she wrote was um uh empire strikes back and the first uh, job she ever had was writing the big sleep with william faulkner you know, a noir movie and um, working on the screenplay. And, you know, she wrote Hatari, a safari movie for Howard Hawks with John Wayne. Yes. So you have her, this kind of great, great, great screenwriter. Vilmo Zygmunt, you know, you have all these kind of, you know, as the cinematographer, you have all of these amazing elements. Uh, the score um, is, uh, is it Williams does the score? John Williams, yes. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you have all these sort of great things. And... Then you throw into it. It's a private eye movie with who? Oh, Elliot, Elliot Gould. Gould, and you and you. You're kind of like when if you were to look at that on paper, you're like, what the? Because we spoke about Elliot Gould before, and I got to tell you, I I always found him kind of goofy and, you know, kind of, I I wasn't always, didn't think he was, you know, as funny. And sometimes I could find him like a little bit irritating, but like, you know, his performances with Altman are incredible. And this performance really makes the film in so many ways. His, I mean, just how loose and how free he is and how he's not, as as you kind of said, he's a different kind of Marlowe.
2: Well, yeah. So one of the things that uh, was said at the time, and it is—it's kind of funny—is that they imagine it as kind of like almost it, it, they could call the story "Rip Van Marlowe," as if Marlowe <laughs> went to sleep in like early fifties and woke up twenty years later and right. it was suddenly the 70s cuz he's he he is the ultimate fish out of water. He's a fish out of water for Los Angeles. And so right. everything that goes around him is this contemporary Los Angeles and it's kind of treated almost the way uh Woody Allen treated Los Angeles in <laughs> in Annie, Annie Hall. Hall, right? I mean, you know, you've got these these like four I guess maybe wannabe actresses that live across the way from Elliot Gould and they're always doing yoga or you know some Mr. kind of meditation. Marlo, can yeah. You
1: go- go get us some brownies please.
2: Yes. <laughs> and so his character, is, oh, he's got a uniform. He's got this uh, raggedy black suit that he always wears. And yes. he's constantly uh, smoking a camel and nobody else in the entire movie smokes. He's the only right. one who smokes in the the film and he's constantly smoking and also lighting matches with matches that don't even exist anymore the kind that you can actually strike anywhere
1: the, the hurricane
2: match yeah, yeah i don't think they even either. existed back in <laughs> 1973 um so he's definitely you know this fish out of time and everything about the movie is is different and, right. and incredible and you know you mentioned velo sigmund and honestly or Vilmos sigmund i always get his name wrong but The cinematography, which he made famous with Robert Altman, and then, of course, filmmakers wanted him to continually do it, but it was a very expensive process. It's this flashing thing where you pre-flash a little bit of light onto the entire film, the negative, before you even shoot, and it does some interesting things. And so, to me, one of the things that's amazing about this movie, I think it's one one of my favorite examples of a color film, Uh, Mm -hmm. the cinematography is incredible not showy in a sense but it's incredible and we talked about at the beginning when noir versus neo-noir and how black and white and how you know the shadows and how it played well this is the first like color film that said hey, we we can do something different here. Because
1: the color palette you're talking about is sort of restricted a bit. Well, okay, so there's
2: some stuff that happens is that the way he plays, uh, I say he, is Vilmos, is that the shadow, movies and shadows, right? That noir, everything that's like dark or sinister, like there'd always be characters and shadows. But here, because he flashes everything, you have an interesting thing where interiors, dark interiors are actually, have a little bit of light. The shadow part are this little auburn brown and you actually see people in the shadows. But constantly... What he does with the flashing is there's – it's many backlight situations. Backlight is where when you are against a very sunny backdrop or something, the the windows would wash out, and then that would make you dark, so you'd have to put lights in front to make sure that your characters could be seen. But with the right. flashing, you see these characters, and you, you can make them out, um, and it's shadowy, but it's almost like you're living inside the shadow and can see the shadow, but then yes. you have these perfectly exposed – exteriors that are bright sunlight but you can see with very deep focus everything that's going on um, and yet you don't see like the, the use of like it doesn't look like you're seeing the use of studio lights it's amazing so there's these scenes in the, and they're actually in Robert Altman's beach house.
1: Oh wow I didn't know that. Yeah
2: so Malibu Colony is a real place and basically you know for budget uh, <laughs> Robert Altman used his own house for the scenes with
1: Nina Van Pallant
2: yes and uh,
1: and Sterling and Hayden. Sterling Hayden hey Marlboro <laughs> um,
2: who by the way Marlbro. <laughs> he was drunk <laughs> and stoned through every shot and he couldn't remember any of his lines but Altman loved what he did so almost everything that came out of Sterling Hayden's mouth Sterling was- Hayden's performance is incredible
1: it's it's actually I mean that's uh, a friend of mine we always used to be like Marlboro hey
2: <laughs> it's the Marlboro man <laughs> Come in here, Marlboro. Uh, you want to have a drink with me?
1: Yeah, we're going to have a good old-fashioned drinking session, me and my, my girlfriend, uh, Marlboro.
2: Yeah, and then they're sitting there and they're drinking whatever that stuff is. I don't know. Accapite. Like, yeah, I don't know what like it is. Caraway seed, seed
1: in a block of ice. That's,
2: That's so great. <laughs> I mean, the, the, that. that is so amazing. Again, with the cinematography, like it's you look at it, and you don't think about it, and then you're thinking about it going, how could you even shoot? How does that even work? Because you don't see it in because it's so hard. And the night stuff just looks like you're out on the street at night. And how could you be shooting this with the low light? It's so incredible. Yes. The story is actually very simple and yes. it's almost right there. I mean, it's the idea whether or not this guy who shows up, you know, could he possibly have murdered his wife? Did he kill himself? And so Marlowe is, you know, off there yet.
1: Or or is he, you know, somehow like, you know, did, uh, you know, a bunch of gangsters somehow do it? It's sort of like, who's the bad guy? Right. Who, you know, is sort of what you're looking for. That's it's the idea of, you know, that's so interesting is the idea somebody has done you know, something
2: wrong. Who's the one who did it? But yet the clues, right, for anybody. And again, this is why a movie like this is really great to rewatch because the the movie almost makes no bones about the fact that at the very least, this guy killed his wife, right? And you know that Mm -hmm. because the very first scene you see is this guy and he's pulling out of- um,
1: Terry Lennox.
2: Terry Lennox. And he's pulling out of where he lived, uh, which also plays a role because this Malibu colony place where also- uh, mall lives <laughs> and uh, he's got a big huge scratch across his face right yes which they don't really get into but it's interesting because then it's juxtaposed where you go into elliot gould's apartment and he's woken up by his cat who scratches him in the face that's right and this huge that's big right. scratch marks on the wall <laughs> and right. so you just have to think so the cat who disappears much like terry lennox is he's they're sort of like you know he he, he substitutes as as this Terry Lennox, and there's a whole thing where Terry Lennox is supposed to be a good friend of Marlowe's, just like the cat's supposed to be, and yes. there's a betrayal there, just the way there's a betrayal that the cat wants a certain brand of cat food, and yes. Marlowe has to go out, and in like the first 15, 20 minutes, there's not even any plot, it's all about him going to try to get this cat food, much right. like- Right,
1: and, and 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 that's the thing, that kind of atmosphere of like, you know, you have to take a long drive to, you know, an open all night- supermarket which you know think about you know i mean that is very kind of like california of the
2: 1970s well but also it's a whole setup there right so if you think about he's going to get he's going to get stuff for his cat the big lebowski at the beginning is going to get uh, absolutely milk, milk, milk for that his uh, first drink, <laughs> drink and then when it's he comes back out. to his house something happens right those guys right. grab him and take his rug and, or pee on his rug and <laughs> then in the long goodbye right you know his cat uh, rebuffs like it's, it's so great. Elliot Gould goes to these great lengths because they they're out of curry cat food, whatever that is.
1: Curry brand cat. Yeah,
2: food. and so, so he gets his other brand. The guy's like, oh, they're all the same. But but like Elliot Gould goes to these lengths of like locking the cat out of the room while he switches the brands, and then he <laughs> pretends talking to the cat as if he's a real you know person. Oh, I got you your food. He drops oh, it in and oh. The,
1: What am I doing? I left the cat out in the the kitchen. Oh, here you go.
2: (laughs) And then the cat's looking at him and it does not want that food and walks away. And so he's been betrayed by his friend, Philip Marlowe. (laughs) Um, And then, of course, the location of where uh, Philip Marlowe lives is this really famous place in the Hollywood Hills behind the Hollywood Bowl. And it features this awesome elevator tower so you don't have to walk up to it. And it's just a fascinating location and I've been to it. Really? uh, Yes, because uh, I went to the Hollywood Bowl once. I mean, we're talking about early 90s and uh, I actually listened to the show. Al Frazier went with him and uh, his then wife and my girlfriend at the time and some other friends and we went to the Hollywood Bowl and saw something. It was pretty cool. And then on the way back, we walked to this like, you know, apartment of somebody's and they took us through this tour where if you know what you're doing, you walk through this tour and it's beautifully lit and as well. And then you end up where that elevator tower is. Wow. It's cool. Like it's definitely something that's just very unique. Um, So I was always fascinated by that. And that of course is featured in this movie. It's also featured in the kind of Branagh film uh, dead again. I think it is.
1: Oh, okay. All right.
2: That's it's not supposed to be that. It's like it's used as a set for something else, in a sense. But it's that. It's that. All the things you're talking about. Those are the elements, like you know, the the kind
1: of alchemy. You know, just those locations that seem so that kind of make the magic of this movie. That really kind of create the vibe. And also the other thing we didn't talk about is the music as well. How explain that?
2: You said John Williams, and there's a song, "The Long Goodbye." And right. it's not just the theme song in this movie, is every single piece of music and sound used in the movie is a version of that song that Robert Altman wrote.
1: So when he goes into, the, yes, when he goes into the supermarket.
2: It's in Muzak. <laughs> Muzak
1: version when, of it.
2: When he goes to uh, the house of, uh, of oh, Bro.
1: Yeah. Right? Rings the doorbell. He rings
2: the doorbell and it actually gives the chime of the long goodbye <laughs> and sometimes when the uh the the neighbors next door are doing the yoga girls. there's like yeah. there's like a sitar uh, <laughs> version <laughs> and you know there's like jazzy versions radio versions
1: and there are people actually playing it like in the piano bar that he goes to as well.
2: You know there's people even humming or singing the song
1: Yes. And when he goes to Mexico, there's the mariachi version it's, of it.
2: That's the best. That is absolutely the best. Uh, and I can, anyway, those kind of things are so weird and odd that I can imagine there are people that that would make them hate the movie because of that.
1: They Yeah, they would probably find it to be kind of twee and, you know, precious.
2: twee. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> however, now, there is... One of your favorite characters, and in mine, is one of the most sinister, evil characters, Marty Augustine, yeah, played by filmmaker Mark, Mark Rydell. Rydell. Yes. and this performance, right? He's this tiny, unthreatening, unimp- unimposing guy. Seems like like kind of the hey, ha, ha, Jewish guy. And then he is just so freaking sinister. Vicious.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. that one scene that I don't want to just give it away, where he um. Shows how Elliot vicious Gould, how, he how be, right? What yeah, like you don't want to get on my bad side. Yeah, that—that's somebody I love. You, I don't even like. Yes, yeah. and then
2: he's <laughs> these goons, and then there's like—I mean, I don't know. Arnold Schwarzenegger is one of his. Goons. Well, yeah, it's hard not to notice Arnold Schwarzenegger in that scene. I mean, he's like this. Yeah, um <laughs> he was there. Yeah, where it's like he's like, all right, everybody get undressed. Yeah, you know that's that's hilarious he's like i'm I not mean, gonna get undressed sense. for you it's like that everybody's getting undressed and all those gangsters and of course then there's the gangsters paid to follow him and elliot gould comes out and he starts talking to the guy and he's like here i've got the address for you it's gonna make it easier yeah, for yeah, you yeah. to follow me and the guy's like oh hey thanks <laughs> oh and then it's not even mentioned that the guy um at the the malibu colony who's the the, the guardsman and right. he does all of these imitations and <laughs> And <laughs> When Elliot Gould has to go in there for the second time, and he pulls up to him, and the guy's like now friendly with Elliot Gould because Elliot Gould was nice to him, and he says, "Hey, right. hey, there's a guy that's gonna come up behind, and he's a really huge Walter Brennan fan." Yeah, Walter. Well. <laughs> and then, then Walter the guy, Brennan. Hey. Yeah, that, that just <laughs> like so that stuff to me is way more entertaining than the plot itself, um, which again is another MacGuffin kind of thing. Um, right. And then there's just stuff with the five thousand dollar Madison thing. <laughs>
1: But I, I think that is kind of Altman's genius in a way is the idea that like within the framework of a kind of traditional narrative that he's able to just kind of play and have this sense of like fun that really, uh, you know, when it works for Altman, it really, really clicks. You know, there are times where it falls, definitely falls flat. And doesn't work, and you're kind of like, why am I watching this? This isn't really, you know, so compelling or interesting. But when you know you really kind of, and part of it, I think, is the audience really needs to respond and get what's happening, you know, and it it works here.
2: Yeah, Um, and of course, you know, again, we as as film watchers, we didn't really have like a same devotion to Humphrey Bogart as Marlowe, so we didn't look at it as much as a sacrilege. That Elliot Gould's Marlowe was so different than anybody that might have been like, oh, they're going to do a new Marlowe movie. Let's go watch it. It's the guy that did right. Match. It's going to be very serious. and uh,
1: <laughs> Which is why you can see this film as such a big influence on Lebowski.
2: Oh, yes. And many other yes. uh, films. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah it's kind of like it's a journey. and. It, that's another thing about this neo-noir, the detective angle and coming up with like, you know, who did it and surprise endings and all that. It, those aren't necessarily as important, not in all of them, but just in some of them. It's more of this journey and character study. than it is about anything else. And uh, like I said, it's just a journey that I enjoy taking. Uh, I've seen it many times and I couldn't resist rewatching it again. No, me neither. neither. And and, and, and it's funny because I would, I tend to watch several movies at once, right? And I'll watch parts. And if one really clicks for me, I'll watch the whole thing. And then the others I'm still struggling to finish. Mm-hmm. And The Long Goodbye was started by me much uh, later than some of these other films I was watching. But like I raced through that because <laughs> it's so good.
1: It, it's uh, it's a great film.
2: Well, now believe it or not, I, I really thought we were going to be like no 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 problem getting through the seventies at least on part one. But as I've discovered as always, it's going to be tough. And I knew that that could happen. So we're going to talk about one more film uh, very briefly before we close out part one, uh, just because of time. And don't worry, there's going to be plenty more parts. We're gonna we're gonna keep doing parts till we've beaten Noir to death. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, because again, deal, deal. I don't know. Will we, will we ever see him or hear him again? Uh, maybe. I'm not sure. Hopefully, you know. I mean, I'm sure I'll talk to him on text, but I can't guarantee you we're ever gonna have a show with him again. I mean, he's gone uh, on his little voice. He's not even moved yet, but he's gone. He's gone from the show until he comes back.
1: You can. I tell you what. That's you're gonna have to use AI to you know. Yeah, artificial intelligence. Right.
2: <laughs> I have enough tapes now, and I can have him go. Uh huh. Yeah. mm mm-hmm, Yeah. Sure. Um. Anyways, the next one is probably one of the, the, the most famous neo noirs of all time. I haven't rewatched it only because I've seen it so many times. Um, mm. And it's one of those movies that, just as far as any film goes, it's like it, if you're a film watcher, you got to see it, right? Um, yes. Is 1974's masterwork, Chinatown. Yes. And I'm probably not going to spend too much time on it because A, I didn't rewatch it. And it's so famous. I did. I don't, oh, you rewatched it. Yeah. And have you seen it in a long time?
1: Uh, I'd seen it fairly recently, but um, it's, um, it's just really, everyone talks about town script. Yeah. And uh, it is an incredible script. It really is.
2: I mean, it's got all the things where we you're talking about the corruption, um, yep. you know, it uses sort of like a real true true-ish story of los angeles and water and uh you know and how
1: water really made los angeles possible yeah
2: and the guys like maholland yes who basically it was like the real guy and then you have uh what uh, john john Houston. houston's character and you know you've got uh this is what, what it why it's, this is like the quintessential neo-noir is it really does take a, a noir story and the time frame of a noir.
1: Noah Cross is the John Huston character, That's right. Noah is the Cross. husband. Oh, Ryer, okay, that's right, right. But
2: you know, you have that mole Holland and you have that mole ray. Um so there were like even the scriptwriter was using things to make sure people knew all the people that they were talking about. And of course Noah Cross. Chris Cross. Uh, um, <laughs> But when you get a film that you can imagine the same story being told at the time in the late 40s. So you can you can envision how this might have played out had this been a movie that was done in, in, in the 40s. But now in the 70s, you can do things to a degree right. and a level and a take to a storytelling level that you could never do before the production right. code changed. Yes, And that's what makes it a new noir And also, you have, you know, well, I guess John jack nicholson he his character is like a classic neo noir de, uh, noir detective where yeah. he's a guy who starts out trying to detect one thing and he gets in way over his head yes but what i like about the film is that his character kind of unlike a lot of films where you can see every twist coming
1: yeah right you know right no we, i mean that's the thing is that we're over our heads for much of the movie is that, you know, you're trying to piece together different elements, you know, what's with the water, you know, and he keeps, it's this kind of preoccupation with uh, the water just keeps coming up again and again and again, you know, you're trying to kind of understand, you know, the, the thread of all these different elements. The title of the film, what's so interesting, you know, again, Chinatown and, you know, that it's the idea, something happened in his past. He used to be a police officer. Um, you get the sense that, you know.
2: I think your bunny is writing a novel back there. <laughs> <laughs> Scene one, Bill and Jim talk about Chinatown. Top, 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 top. <laughs> or is it that or he's like he's like uh, tapping on in the water bottle and SOS code, help me, James, please help me. I am living in hell. Bill from Queens cannot be trusted. <laughs> I hear you, bunny. I'm uh, calling the cops right now. <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> but um, I I just think that again uh, the the whole thing that's so also so interesting about it is the idea of his his backstory and how much we we don't really know just kind of the sense that um you know that we we are kind of meant to guess or kind of you know figure out what happened in his backstory that you know as he says you know there was someone I was trying to help and I ended up making it worse and the idea that Chinatown. You know there's only the ending of the film that takes place in chinatown and you know sort of what it represents as kind of like corruption and uh you know um the idea of that um you know um all the people with kind of political power and you know uh are able to kind of do what they want and it's it's a really great ending to the film also which town didn't want you oh know, yeah town Oh, yeah, that's that's the thing is that town wanted a happy ending oh. for the story. And, um, you know, we'll bring up the uh, 800-pound gorilla. We're not mentioning Polanski, you know, who directed it.
2: Was Roman he 800 Polanski. pounds? I'm sorry. <laughs> so, well, no, it's okay. See, he, it's okay because here's the question. Before he, you know, took a teenage girl and uh, raped her in Jack Nicholson's house. Um, yeah this was before that so like are you allowed to like watch a polanski movie from pre that is that well, a, is that I, like i, I have
1: watched. Okay? i've watched post yeah know, i know but i'm just polanski saying for today's
2: youngsters can they handle yeah, 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 yeah. it i think I, that I, that would I, be not a good thing to miss a movie like chinatown over that but
1: right i i absolutely agree and and the thing is what happened was um when they were working on the script polanski wanted a much darker ending than Town wanted, and they got into a big argument about it. And what Polanski apparently said was uh, he made reference to Sharon Tate, his wife, who was murdered by the Manson family, and said, um, "and said uh, that's reality, uh, a, a darker ending to the film." Did
2: uh, Polanski uh, pull a knife on uh, Townsend, rip his nose? Goes, you nosy little kitty cat! <laughs> <laughs> I love that part is, too.
1: It is it is a great performance that he gives in it. You know, with uh, with that guy and his, his accent, you know, makes him all the more sinister.
2: And then in this movie and in Across 110th Street, you have performances by Burt Young. Yes, that's so right. Burt silent Young. in Across 110th Street. Burt Young in the
1: very beginning Across 110th Street. That's right. Yes, yes. I do
2: notice that in these movies, you'll see certain characters you know, or, or actors and actresses appearing multiple times in some of these movies. right. So here's the this is the weird thing where you're really um, you know we've we've covered a lot but yet we haven't covered very much. There's a lot to say. So now I'm thinking we've got I've got a year's worth of movies. Um, I did want to I do want to get through every title that uh, Criterion Channel has. But we've set the stage. This is just I guess a part one. Um, and don't worry, we're gonna be back with part two where we may get through the rest of the 70s. Hopefully, <laughs> um, you know we'll, we we'll we do our we do what we can. But anyways. Um, we're going to wrap up now And I hope you've enjoyed this Starter on Neo Noir I guess it'll be quicker next time because we're not going to have to explain Neo Noir to you, the listener And uh, so, you know, again, watch for these Episodes on StuffWe'veSeen.com Which is not Yeah, it's just StuffWe'veSeen.com Sorry, I'm, I'm I'm losing it, it's too early in the morning uh, <laughs> uh, Billy You can always get be reached at his private number <laughs> 1-800-THE-RABBIT-SPEAKS um, No uh Billy, you have anything to say, any plugs before we sign off this first episode?
1: No, I'm not plugging anything this week. Okay. Thanks, Jim. Just you know, yeah, just okay. just here for the lulls. You
2: know. Okay. Uh, visit uh Bill at the Paramus Mall uh <laughs> August uh sixth through the seventh. No. All right, people. Uh thanks for tuning in and we will be back with another Neo Noir episode.